Welcome to the Governance Evaluator Conversation about Governance series. I'm Ian Cover, and in this series I'll be chatting with a range of individuals who will bring us their personal perspective on the everyday side of governance. Welcome to our Governance Evaluator Expert Insights webinar. My name is Ian Cover, and it's a great pleasure to be here today and to introduce the very first guest for our Insights chat, dual Olympic gold medalist, four-time world champion, chef de mission to the 2012 Olympic Games in London and lots more besides, Nick Green. Hello, Nick. Coves, how are you? I'm very well. Lovely to see you. Good, and I've got to say, because uh, you're now a responsible, mature administrator and um, business person. I've been called many things, but not mm. that, but anyway. Uh, you're still Nick. You haven't decided to go with Nicholas? No, my mother calls me Nicholas. Oh. And I'm, when I'm in trouble, I'm Nicholas. <laughs> well, I hope I don't have to yes. call you Nicholas no. <laughs> today. And, of course, we go a long way back, uh, if I can just indulge for a moment. In 1992, when you won the first of those gold medals with the Coxless Four... <laughs> at the Barcelona Olympics. Yeah, yeah. There's a little shot of me when I came to celebrate with you after the event. Some people have seen that. You led us astray, didn't I, if I understand, because we were very teetotaling um, athletes who focused on our craft of rowing and then you came along and all of a sudden, you know, you took us to these different pubs and nightclubs to celebrate our success and we didn't want to do it. Well, yeah. It, it, you took a bit of persuasion, but there, there was plenty to celebrate. And it was really exciting to be there. And, and I've shown that photo to a lot of people over the years. And whilst you were known as the Coxless Four, some people thought I was actually the Cox and was in... must have been so exciting. Look, as, as a young kid, you know, at the time I was 22, 23, and hadn't really, I suppose, worked out who I was as a person, hadn't really travelled the world that much. And, and so... Um, and this was my first Olympic Games... And um, so I wanted to come out of it the thinking I was even going to the Olympics, which I, as a young kid, never thought I was capable of doing that. And then going to my first Olympic Games, coming home with a gold medal, um, was most, um, I suppose, a, a really amazing time for me personally, and also as the team. And, um, you know, we, we had gone away to the Olympics as completely unknown entities, although the name Awesome Foursome was building a bit mm -hmm. of momentum. And you were the... Reigning world champions. Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd won a couple of world titles yeah. beforehand, but um, when it came to, I suppose, the Olympics, you were validating that, you know, you could perform on a global stage. And so we've gone away as unknowns and come back almost household names. Um, and, uh, look, those games were a wonderful a mixture of mm. um, fun and gauge. We had, a, we had a ball as young athletes. We just had an absolute ball. We didn't take ourselves seriously. We just engaged in our sport and wanted to be as, you know, successful as we can. And one of the things I remember, you know, about those games was where the likes of Kieran Perkins um, came onto the, mm. sea, uh, the scene, Cathy Watt, um, Clint Robinson, Gillian yeah. Rolton, the, well, the late Gillian Rolton. And at those Olympics, Australia had won seven gold medals uh, in five different sports, mm. you know, in the cycling, swimming, canoeing, rowing. Equestrian. Equestrian. And what was interesting about the time was almost they were atypical of Australia at the time because we won all of our medals either lying down or sitting down. So uh, <laughs> it was a, a really wonderful time, uh, you know, in that era. And, uh, of course, we're going to talk about governance today. Yeah. But at the same time, as soon as you talk about you had fun, it was just a sport, but sport is business too these days. And I suppose it was around about that time that sport was really becoming a business. 
And I've often said to people that you had a lesson for people in business, even in the way you approached mm. the gold medal race. Because I remember you saying that you you knew how fast you could go through each of the stages in the race, yeah. and when you were actually coming third at about the halfway mark, you didn't panic because you had a game plan mm. and you stuck to it, mm. which is a lesson for business, isn't it? Yeah, we look it's quite simply. You know, I do a lot of talking now about, I suppose, the principles of what we did as a crew, as an awesome foursome. And, and when you break it down, they're actually quite simple. You know, we, we had to trust one another. We had to be really clear on what we were there to achieve. Um, we had to communicate with one another, and um, and, and with uh, around all of that, there was you know hard work and 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 perseverance because it's not easy, and you go ups and downs, and at times you want to. Um, quit and, and you know and um, because the journey is challenging but I suppose when you stick through it and you come out the other end of it you realize how rewarding that journey is that if it was easy then everyone could do it so the, the fact that it was hard and challenging and confronting and you had to really draw within yourself to get this performance out was one of the most rewarding parts of being an athlete at the mm-hmm. time. So I could say I, I uh, made the analogy of like sport is business now and uh, those little things you just talked about then touch on governance principles too, yeah. don't they, about teamwork and knowing your role and communication and all that sort of stuff. When you were in the boat 26 years ago, did you know what governance was? No. No. <laughs> well, well, yes and no. I mean, I'd, I had no idea of the wider world of sport and the role that governance play. And maybe there were snippets of it within our own rowing team. And mind you, we were... Yes, there was four in a boat. We had our coach, Noel Donaldson, and then there was a team around us. So we, we knew we were part of a team. And we knew there was some elements of, you know, how we had to go about our business um, to perform as athletes. But, um, but as an athlete, um, I didn't really care, and nor was I aware that all the other stuff was going on around me. And um, as a young athlete, I suppose, I, I, I took the approach that uh, if I had to know about governance, then they were stuffing something up, right? <laughs> Uh, and, yeah. I, and I suppose I, I took that now, I've just come from the CEO of Cycling Australia, and I almost took that mantle to go, well, my relationship as a CEO now needs to make sure the athletes don't know I'm there in terms of um, stuffing things up. If, if I can do things that support the athletes, make their journey easy, put everything in place around them to support them in their endeavours just to be really clear about what they were doing, then I'm doing my job. And um, so I was really pleased that I could leave cycling after four years knowing that the athletes, yes, knew I was there and, and engaged with them, but at the same time, you know, the National Federation wasn't getting in the way of their progress as athletes. Mm. We might come back to some of those <laughs> yeah, issues, yeah. especially in Cycling Australia. Yeah. But uh, just when you were rowing, there would have been Rowing Australia was the, yeah. the national body. Yeah. And they'd be affiliated with, what, the Australian Olympic yeah, the, Commission? Yeah, look. In, in the, if you're an Olympic sport, um, you, you're aligned domestically with... The Australian Olympic Committee yeah. um, and also the Australian Sports Commission, which is now called Sport Australia. And the sport will have a link into an international body. In, in our case, it was the um, FISA, which is the International Rowing right. Federation. And, and did you have a, a, a home rowing club as well? Uh, Melbourne Uni was my home club. Yeah. So I, I was based in Melbourne and I rode up and down on the Yarra River. Uh, and that was our home. We were enticed to travel the world and train. And we were That's the time when the Australian Institute of Sport was being established. And um, uh, because we were successful, yes, they uh, wanted us to relocate to Canberra and we said no. Uh, and, and we took a decision as athletes that our best environment for us was to be in our home environment. We were, we were amateur athletes, so we were working and studying. 
and uh, living at home or living in our home environment, networking with our friends and leading a normal life uh, was what we needed as athletes to um, stay sane and stay normal. Mm. But all those bodies from the grassroots level of yeah. Melbourne Uni right to the AOC and then the IOC for that matter, yeah. they've all got <clears throat> boards or committees running, they've all got governance responsibilities yeah. to undertake and, yeah. and did, did, some do it better than others? Yeah, I think one of the things I learnt in my sport, and I, I just go back very quickly, is mm. it was once I'd sort of concluding my Olympic, you know, campaign, uh, I knew in my heart that I wanted to give back to sport and because it had given me so much. And um, it was actually John Coates who invited me to carry the flag at the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympic Games. And uh, I was with... One of uh, eight. Seven, one of eight. One of uh, seven other athletes. Don't and, take you know, all the credit. <laughs> And that was the most amazing, yeah. you know, Bill, Bill, boy, Rook, Bill Roycroft was there, Gillian Rolton and many others. And anyway, um, and Marjorie Jackson and we, and we had to walk around and carrying the flag. Yeah. But that, that to me goes, this is bloody fantastic, um, mm-hmm. to be frank. And I wanted to commit my, I suppose, volunteer time to do it. So therefore I started to get to know the structure of governance and the responsibilities. And I suppose now, 20-odd years later, I see that there's a whole lot of different layers of governance. Everyone's got... Um, roles and responsibilities from international level in the way they lead and uh, the way they carry about their business, which sets the cultural standard around how the industry operates, I think, all the way down to the grassroots level. Um, and so at the, I think at the time with the, uh, the football, International Football Federation, the IOC, in my younger days as an athlete, I, I think you'd say that their governance principles were not that sound. Mm. Um, and and they're improving. Uh, I wouldn't say they're ideal, but they're definitely improving at the moment too. And, and it goes down to do you have trust and confidence um, at, all the way from an international down to domestic level that the system's working now. As I said, it's not perfect and it's an evolution and it's a cultural p- piece as well. It's about people. We are, we're a people business sport and people then influence the uh, cultural standards that are set within the sport from an international down to domestic level. But very clearly, there's there's different layers of um, uh, of sport governance. We're in a federated model predominantly, which means it becomes complicated uh, in that federated model. Um, but it also requires then a different uh, outputs at different levels of government from your local footy club, mm. who uh, look after that local community and immersed in the local community, all the way down to a national federation who has to lead the you know, the sport nationally from our various different levels. And it must make it difficult for some of those, as you say, lower-level grassroots domestic competitions when they head international body, yeah. like FIFA, yeah. for example, has got terrible problems with governance mm. and that can impact the sport right down through all the levels, can't it? Well, I think you could look at it, you know, now there's... Um, use the football example. You, you, I think generally as the public, you would think that football's not very well governed mm. at the moment now probably is mm. um and, and i know and i know personally there's some terrific things they do from a governance point of view but from the public's point of view you'd probably think the sport's not that well governed um and so the challenge is then to um you know how do you create that cultural stability within the whole of the industry when the when your perception of the national or the international bodies um, not leading from a good moral compass. <laughs> um, and that, that sometimes is a real challenge for the sport to manage because part of this governance evolution is cultural and it's, and it's people. So um, sometimes there needs to be people that need to move on and get out of the sport. Um, uh, sometimes there's a need for an ongoing education training about the good principles. I suppose it's more of a contemporary governance model in today's age. 
And so, uh, just to backtrack, you've been CEO of Cycling Australia, yeah. and I imagine that led to you being on the board or sitting in on board meetings and all. And then you've been on the board of Vic Health. Yep. And within that, apart from being on the board, you're on a, a subcommittee, it was a finance and audit subcommittee. Yeah. And so, some of those roles is the governor's responsibility different? like from being on the general board, say, of Vic Health to then running the finance and yeah. audit side of things? Look, you're right. I, I sat. Um, I first of all sat on the board of the Victorian Olympic Council um, and then I took over as, as its president. I was the president there for 11 years. And, um, and, and similarly, I sat on the board of the Australian Olympic Committee for 11 years, which now I've both um, stepped away from, and Vic Health as well. And one of the things um, I, I did immediately when I came to the Victorian Olympic Council is, I suppose, manage... I wanted a team of um, uh, volunteers on our board um, who were professional in what they did and therefore uh, respecting their time constraints that come with professional boards. So in essence, we changed the culture that um, the management had to ma lead and operate and the board were there to govern. And um, previously the board had been managing instead of governing. So we, we changed very quickly to say that we'll adopt some modern government's principles to... Um, particularly allow the management to manage and, and lead the organisation. Um, and if they are successful, you praise them. If they're, if they're not successful, you continue to work with them to improve what they do instead of interfering with their business. So I think there is a common theme amongst sports at the moment, still to this day, around um, attracting a skill-based board members, whether you're a local sport club or a national federation, who... Uh, involved in the sport to ensure the sport from a from a structural point of view is sound and there's too many examples in sport where you get fan fans of the sport who sit on the board who think um, you know that they're on the board because they love the sport right and, and that's we want them to love the sport but we also want to we want to check their you know their enthusiasm when they come in the door and bring their expertise that they're engaged on the board it's sort of getting the balance between oversight and being a sort of like an active yeah. participant in the... Yeah, right, well, I, I suppose as a CEO of a business, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of board members being board members and look at the governance and let management get on with management. And when there's a blur between board members trying to manage the business, then I think you become all sorts of um, uh, concerns and troubles for the management team to get on with their business. So it, there is a... Um, uh, you know, there's a fine line. So I, I pref I'd prefer board members to stay out of management issues, um, personally. Um, but I think then the boards have got a role. Their, their expertise that they come, uh, whether it's um, from a, a legal perspective, whether it's a financial perspective, whether it's a risk perspective, um, use their expertise to help shape um, the organisation to be better. And, th and I think that applies from a national point of view all the way down to a domestic level. A local sport club who, who relies on volunteers, which they do, who give up their time and, and when they can come and help try and steer the club in the right direction. And um, I think regardless, the principles of the governance uh, are the same, that um, yes, we give, give our time, we want to be fans of the club, but also you've got to be careful that you're there to help manage and direct and steer and lead the organisation, uh, not get involved too much in the management operations. We're talking to... Dual Olympic gold medalist, four-time world champion, uh, Nick Green, in our governance evaluator uh, conversation about governance and getting your insights today. And uh, we'll look at a, uh, if we move on to a bigger picture now of sport in Australia, 
and a national sport plan mm. 2030 that's been released. Um, <clears throat> I imagine that's covering all aspects of sport. So perhaps you give us a general overview of that and also um, how, how they're looking at governance of sport in that plan. So um, John Wiley is the chair of the Australian Sports Commission, now called Sport Australia, and has been for some time, and Kate Palmer's the new CEO there. And one of the things I would observe into sport that um, since the 1976 Olympics, uh, I don't think there's been too many dramatic changes into sport um, or any key events that have changed our, our approach. So 1976 is when Australia failed to win a gold medal in the uh, Olympic Games in uh, since 76. That led to the federal government starting to think about sport and what sport does for the nation um, uh, domestically, but also how does it shape uh, our reputation internationally. And so that started the Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Sports Commission and then that centre in Canberra and then the investment that came in. And it, it was noted that then there was a significant um, level of increased professionalism into the sports sector. Um, that led to Australia then um, winning and hosting the Olympic Games in Sydney. So in the last 50 years, there's been two major milestones that have shaped our direction into sport you know, and I'm focusing more on the Olympic side of the sports. And um, one of the things that's where we've suffered, I think, in the last 20 years, there's been no new change. There's been no new funding. There's been no new thinking that has dramatically changed the way we think. Now, we've got some wonderful talent in this country. A lot of it is based now abroad, and it's very challenging to get those expertise back into the country because of our, our, our finances and our funding model. And so I think one of the things that the Sports Commission have done and are doing are continuing to think about the shaping needs of the nation. So we've got this new plan 2030, um, which is, there's a number of different levels to it. So the sport um, have recognised that the health of the nation is declining through physical inactivity, sedentary lifestyle, and the economic and diseases that come with being sedentary. And if I can interrupt, so is that an early indication that Back in 76 was all about getting us back winning gold medals. Correct. And yeah. this time we might be looking more at getting people actually just doing stuff. Yeah, well, I think the, cha the, 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 the Sports Commission's rule um, operation was around um, winning medals at Olympic and world level and showcasing uh, our capabilities as a nation. And then that capability of the nation then starts to draw down into the local community who, when Cathy Freeman wins at the, um, you know, the Olympic Games in Sydney... Uh, a, a throng of young athletes want to emulate what Cathy Freeman did. All sign up for little ass. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and Ian Thorpe and so on and so forth, right? Um, so that's the way we approached our engagement of our youth. Now, that's not quite working the way it was because the sports aren't necessarily geared up to cope with the influx um, uh, under a federated model of, of new participants. So there is a focus now um, following what's happening around the world. Sport England's probably a very good example of having an approach where um, uh, focus on health and well-being of the nation's important because of its driver economically. And at the same time, you marry that with a balanced approach in sport. So clearly there is a focus on this sport plan of health and well-being. There is a focus on uh, elite athletes and they have a role to play uh, within the system. There is a focus on um, the integrity of sport. And, and that's been a real focus recently following 
a couple of raw, uh, well, a raw commission into child sexual abuse is one, and then secondly would be the raw commission into well, the the uh, not the raw commission investigation investigation into integrity into sport and yeah. what was needed to help uh, protect the integrity of sport with the proliferation of. Um, gambling and, a, and, a, and illegal betting and, and doping. And, and specific examples like the Essendon drug saga? Yeah, there, there's a number of examples where yeah. sports reputation have been brought into disrepute yeah. by um, matters where, you know, the athletes or administrators or people involved in the sport, you know, haven't quite conducted themselves mm. in, the, in the best way. So therefore there is a, an approach to put in a better governance framework or uh, integrity framework. And the issue with the sports have got at the moment is... Um, they support the integrity framework and it's now independent of the sports to, to have that independent. But um, sports will struggle to deal with it from an administrative point of view as another layer of governance they've got to deal with. Uh, and then the third, lead, the fourth point would be um, uh, around contemporary leadership of sport, contemporary governance of sport, and allow sport to be more reliant on our own self-sufficiency than government funding. So there's a number of layers that sport need to now to consider now. The likes of the AFL and Cricket Australia and some of the more professionally based codes do that well. Um, but majority of the 70 plus sports that receive funding from the Australian Sports Commission will, st will struggle on, on certain aspects of meeting the needs of the new strategy. So there is, a, there is a requirement now for sports to be really serious about how they go about their business, how they develop partnerships with um, outside organisations to help meet the needs of whether it's a governance um, environment, whether it's to improve their governance pla um, platforms, whether it's identifying what their risks are in the future, um, whether it's around people and uh, how to maintain and, and attract um, people. The, the sports sector generally is under a fair bit of pressure. Um, most of the CEOs of national federations uh, last, well, I say last... Four somewhere, years. Somewhere <laughs> between four years. They go Olympic cycles, but um, because of the demands and pressures and mm. uh, on them, there, there tends to be a four-year... Um, cycle and then either they get out or they reinvent themselves um, in somewhere else. Well, that's the pressure on the CEO. What about <laughs> people then that are on, you yeah. know, commissions, boards, committees, you know, doing doing the governance role, all the oversight mentioned before? Yeah. I mean, if someone come to me and said, look, we'd like you to be on the board of yeah. some particular sport body, what I think, well, hang on, we've got drugs in sport, we've got uh, gambling yeah. issues, particularly with um, yeah. illegal yeah. Uh, gambling operations, um, max fixing, uh, match fixing, yeah. uh, and, and now child safety becoming a, a big yeah, issue absolutely. now in sport. You yeah. didn't think about that before. Yeah. And then as well, you've got to also consider remaining solvent too because you've got to you know, run the thing with financial <coughs> prudence. Yeah. Um, Excuse me. Uh, so Water went down the wrong way. <laughs> uh, <coughs> how, how tough is it then for people to you know take up these roles yeah. knowing they've got all these... Governance yeah. responsibilities. Um, it's very challenging. I think sports under a lot of pressure at the moment to meet the needs of all these governance requirements mm. and their ability to do so. So their their expectations to deliver all of those things. You're right, Coves, around child protection and the obligations of sport, uh, um, which they should as mandatory, uh, ensure that they can protect um, children involved in sport uh, and everything that goes with that. There is a very strong obligation to do that, and I think the sports sector is learning very quickly about what they need to do in that area and how to go about it. Um, as I said, it's another layer of governance that the sports sector has to deal with and not necessarily right now geared up to be able to deal, um, deal with it. And then there is the, you know, the, um, uh, it is the skill gaps that sometimes boards have and, and from a governance point of view. And um, 
So I suppose you know the, the, the learning that sports need to reconsider now is from a contemporary governance model, knowing that sports need to continue to diversify their revenue streams, they need to diversify their uh, output on protecting the community that they, um, that they represent. Uh, it means you've got to attract different people to the board who've got those necessary skills and then you need to train the boards up on what they need to do, um, what sort of uh, um, uh, affirmative action they need to take on some of those issues and how do they deal with the, the, the member protection, the child protection, the, in, the income generation side um, and all the other governance requirements of meeting the needs of a company limited by guarantee, which most sports are heading to at the moment, and the roles and responsibilities of the directors in, in doing so. And, and is Sport Australia yeah. in doing that 2030 plan, are they also <coughs> addressing that side of things rather than just yeah, they are. the on-field stuff? Yeah, my, my view would be the Sports Commission is one of the few federal agencies that are tackling um, the, the, uh, the growth uh, and the responsibilities around um, child protection. And so I think they're, they're really leading um, from Commonwealth agency point of view of building up their requirements and leadership uh, and governance around what's the best way to help manage and protect uh, the integrity of the sports sector um, in, and in relation to child protection. Now, one of their responsibilities from a leadership point of view is then to educate and lead the national federations uh, in, in, in and if you go down on a federated model, then the national federations have a responsibility then to lead uh, the state Fight. issues and the clubs that go mm. with them. Um, and most of the issues around child protection are, are state laws. And so the state associations uh, have to take more of a, um, a leadership responsibility. And, and again, under the federated model, the uh, states look after the clubs and so on and mm. so forth. So there is this um, top-down approach that needs to occur at the same time, almost a bottom-up approach where the, the, the clubs... Um, and the state associations also need to, to tackle this issue head on. And again, it's one of those things around, you know, um, ensuring there is a, the skill level uh, within the board um, and there is a very clear process of the roles and responsibilities of the board. And if the boards feel that they don't have the necessary skills, it's about how do they get it externally or under, undertaking a skills matrix of their board to work out what skills do they need on the board to challenge um, and to meet the needs of the sports sector in the next, maybe not 30 years, but definitely in the next, um, you know, 12 to um, 12 months to you know four or five years, there's going to be some increased demands on another level of governance they had to have to meet. Uh, don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, if someone came to you and said, "Right, give us the uh, the blueprint for an ideal board," you know, yeah. what would it be? What would the skill sets be across? How many would you have? I know. Um, Juan Antonio Samaranch, when he was chair of the uh, president of the IOC, there was one, think, wasn't there? Well, he, he no, he said that uh, a good board or committee should always have an odd number, yeah, and and three is too many. Yes, <laughs> uh, things have changed since uh, Samaranch. Yes, um. but, but you have to have all that skills, don't you? Across, obviously, financial and yeah. um, people from the sport. Yeah, people understand uh, yeah. the law. Yeah. Look, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a marrying up between what's the strategic direction of the organisation versus what skills do you need on the board to help the organisation meet that strategic plan. And so if I use the case, um, you know, in cycling, where, where when I took over cycling, we had a strong desire. We were almost a turnaround business, so we had a strong desire to make sure our finances um, were well managed, were transparent, 
uh, and independently verified. We, we had to make sure that we had a very clear strategy on new revenue streams and commercial growth. And so as two examples, and so th therefore when we were selecting the appropriate people we wanted on our board, we had to make sure that those people had those necessary skills to help us deliver against that strategic plan. Knowing that um, once we had um, implemented the right strategy around uh, a financial um, you know, um, clarity and, a, and our audit risk committee, knowing that if we got that right, then in the future, that didn't need to be a focus of the organisation. So therefore, we could get rid of those, so to speak, mm. uh, those skill sets and then bring on skill sets based on the next challenge that we had as a business. And if that was broadcast negotiations, which most sports do, or whether, whether it's some, um, you know, um, uh, alignment into corporate Australia or whatever it might be, then you start to identify the skills that you need uh, to do so. On the basis, though, that, um, you know, the you know, the skills that you bring in, yes, they need to be passionate about the sport because they are volunteering their time and, and sometimes it's very time consuming. But on the on the same time, we, you, you know, you, you bring them in because they've got the expertise in that area and you want them to help um, focus their attention on that particular area that the organisation is working on. So I think um, the, the message to me around that is bring in the skills that you need. Well, well number one, identify where your gaps are on your board. That, that's pretty simple. And then secondly, bring in people that you help can help um, in that journey of your organisation address those immediate needs. And if you think you've got that um, that sorted, then if you've got another focus area, bring in the experts you need on that focus to help you as a business to to move forward. And I'd imagine a strong leadership would be a, a prerequisite as well, because yeah. clearly there was no there was no one on the IOC, for example, who you know either stood up to. Samaranch or tried to rein him in, yeah. and I imagine that happens in. I, I know of local sporting clubs where someone's in charge and they just run it as their own personal fiefdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is good to. I mean, strong leadership is great, but if it goes too far, it, it does need to be reined in. Yeah. Well, there's a fine balance between you know, um, sort of obviously political debate away from sport the moment about you know politics on the left or the right. And, mm. You know, there's. There is, a, there is a couple of, in my view, there's a couple of characteristics that sport seems to have from a leadership point of view. And maybe my, my generalisation observation is internationally, sport leadership is more around um, uh, a, a dominance approach, you know, uh, uh, being absolutely iron-fisted in control, where sport in Australia is more uh, led by an empathetic approach, by an EQ, you know, um, uh, emotional intelligence approach. So you, you get this marrying between people who have a common interest in good moral guidance to lead sports versus internationally that might be led with more of a dictator uh, approach. So you sometimes have this clash of leadership cultures. Um, I, I do think generally in sport in Australia, it, it is governed by um, well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, passionate people uh, who want to volunteer their time into the sports sector, and we need to continue that. Volunteers drive sport, you know, absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, and so then, the, you know, that for, for the sports sector to to um, get the most out of those those volunteers, we need to protect them, we need to support them, and we need to ensure that their their experience in sport is a friendly one and memorable that they don't want to leave after 12 months because it's too bloody hard. <laughs> or they've been asked to do so many things that they, you know, they just don't have the time. So there's this fine balance between 
um, capable board members who've got the time and from a management point of view, while I've, I've told board members to stay out of management um, and be directors, but I also think management uh, have to not always ask on board members to be managers. Um, and so there's a fine combination between, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the relationship between the managers and the, the, the directors. Um, when you talk about <coughs> leaders in, in uh, that perhaps had a bit more profile than others, uh, they, like Arthur Tunstall, yes. they get referred to as colourful, uh, you know, sporting identities and all yes. but, and And he was clearly passionate about his sport. Yeah. Um, but then, and I suppose some of those people that are colourful and all, um, the media likes to yeah. go to them because yeah. they, they give them uh, colourful yeah. commentary and, yeah. and, 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 and spice to it and all. Um, and we lose I'm, a bit of colour at I'm, the moment I'm, I'm hard-pressed to name an Arthur Tunstall at the moment in any yeah, sporting no, right. body. Well, I think that, look, it's, it's, it's a positive step Which forward. Which is a good that thing, we're, You know, yeah. we're, the sport is evolving from a good contemporary governance framework. And, um, look, my approach to all this is I want the athletes to tell the story. Yeah. And I actually prefer administrators and directors to get out of the way and let the athletes tell the story. And so... But the... the, the the responsibility, and we've seen it in recent times where, you know, the athletes have been on the front page of the newspapers for all the wrong reasons, um, where we should be decorating the back pages for all the right reasons. And um, so that then comes back, well, I want the athletes to tell the story, but it does mean that there needs to be this good governance, this good leadership, this good cultural uh, piece with an organisation to allow an athletes to tell the story that helps protect the reputation uh, of their own of, of the athletes and also the organisation. When you were rowing, yes, did you have, have anyone from the board come down and perhaps suggest how you could improve your rowing, or did they keep out? Um, of it? I won't. I won't name names, <laughs> but um, in one of our uh, trips uh, with the Awesome Foursome, um, uh, led by Mike Mackay, we actually uh, staged a takeover <laughs> of management. Oh, really? Because we didn't think the management were managing very well. And I won't name names, um, but we, uh, the athletes actually revolted because we didn't feel that we were getting um, uh, fair support. We didn't, and we were overseas at the time. We didn't feel that the money was being invested in the right area. Mm. Um, we, we, we tend to have been staying in backpackers' accommodation where we're trying to represent the country <laughs> at the highest level. And so we actually had enough and we took over um, and we uh, got this manager at the time Removed, and I think that was a, you know, it was my, it was probably my first foray as an athlete to think about management. I was going to say this when, is they, your... when they got in the way, yeah, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise they go, yeah, everything's everything's well yeah. organised and well run, but there's just every now and then something pops up, and you go, that that doesn't seem right, mm. and we have to correct it, and which we did. I was going to say this seems like an early indication <laughs> that you were going to move well, into possibly it did, management. You know, in hindsight, yes, and so. Uh, that, that's a long time ago, but you sorted that out. That's good. And hopefully there's not too much of that has to occur these days. Uh, well, it still does, um, mm. I'm sure. Um, but but I, I generally think, you know, sport is in a really exciting place. Um, but we need to, as, a, as an industry, be more unified and collaborative in our approach. And I think one of the... the I, I think the sports sector is under pressure, um, under pressure on a, on a whole lot of different fronts. Um, 
and I think the, the better we can come and collaborate. The federated model, I think, is creating a fair bit of that pressure. And there are some examples where sports have gone to a unitary model, only, only very can, few of them. Can you just explain the difference? Yeah, that, I for suppose a, for the, the federated model like means me. there is a... If a federated model simply would mean if you're... I'll use my case with cycling as mm. the CEO. Um, under our constitution, my members, or Cycling Australia's members, are the... the seven state and territory associations so they become my constitutional members and my voting members and underneath that structure um, the state associations their members are the clubs uh, and the members within those clubs um, in a unitary model i suppose you get rid of a, a couple of layers of governance and um, you know you, you the members themselves the participants become members of the national federation and so that's happening in one or two um, Golf have adopted that, sailing have adopted that as, as national sports. And the rest of the sports sector are taking notice to see from an improvement point of view and an efficiency point of view, is that where sports should go. Now there's some efficiencies in terms of overhead costs and duplication on resources and you know administrative responsibilities. And so the federate the, the there is the, the unitary model will start to explore sport to be more efficient on the basis that if there's no new money coming into sport then sports need to be more efficient within their own organisations to then reinvest their money into capability and more money invested into athletes, more money invested into volunteers, etc., and so on and so forth, to make the sports more viable. So there is, there is this real um, thinking around uh, and leadership around a unitary versus federated. Now, because we've worked in a federated model for a, a very long time... Some people find it hard to give up correct. the positions the, the, they've had at the, the state the, level. That is right. You know, the, the appetite for change uh, is sometimes not there. But on the basis that, and I respect that, there should be change if there's a compelling evidence to have change. We shouldn't just change because we need change, but we should. there should be enough compelling evidence to go. If we would adopt a different model, there is more efficiencies, the sport will better will be better from it. There'll be more opportunities to um, to allocate our resources we've got to different areas, particularly around development, uh, around engaging the, our youth and, um, and our club culture to continue to be a beacon for the sports sector. And I think most people um, now are participating in their sport or physical activity away from organised sport. And so therefore a federated model is declining because as a participant in sport, I don't necessarily want to go to a sport club mm. because um, in cycling's case, I can just get on a bike but and ride, right? And golf course, I can go and play any golf course I want, so why would I become a member? So there are some of the really confronting uh, areas that the sports are trying to deal with, and then, which leads to uh, generate their own re revenue streams and be more efficient and then looking from a governance point of view of what they need to do or what sort of skills they need to help the sports meet the needs of the contemporary uh, challenges that they're facing at the moment. And uh, Nick, you got children? Three. Are they Beautiful involved? Beautiful teenage daughters. Are they yes. involved in junior sport? Yeah, they, they play all sorts of sport. Um, Have you been asked to be on the committee or the board uh, of any of their clubs? I, my youngest daughter is playing football with the uh, Port Melbourne Colts at the Aussie moment. Aussie rules. Aussie rules. Yeah. And so uh, even then I get dragged into being a runner or <laughs> a boundary umpire, which I thoroughly love, but a community member, no. But um, I, I do sit on the committee of my daughter's rowing school uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and enjoy contributing just as a parent um, and one of the things I do you know we, we as a as a community group uh, our job is to support the kids you know in any way we can now because I've got a rowing background I obviously get asked many many questions about 
the, the progress of the rowing club and I do try and keep my powder dry and go, <laughs> I'm just here as a parent, I'm helping the club, you know, be more uh, efficient, not telling them how to row. So um, even with whoever's running the rowing at the school <laughs> or the, the Port Colts yes. footy team, yeah. right up to uh, you know, elite level sports bodies, yeah. who's, who's um, you know, evaluating <coughs> or measuring how they're doing their, their job yeah. in the governance yeah, that, that's uh, space. A good, that's a good point. I think um, in my experience, um, sports have, have attempted to ensure that they've got checks and balances. Um, most national federations, for example, will have an audit risk committee and will have a risk registrar. Now, the, the, because of the pressures on the finances and, the, and because they're receiving their money from taxpayers from the Commonwealth, most of their risk registrar is related to financial risk. And so they have, you know, and so their audit risk committee members um, usually have expertise in financial risk accounting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that provides a very good solid base of uh, outside checks and balances. But most sports don't look at the other risks that um, organisations may face or necessarily have the skills. So one of the things that, on the notion that the sport sector needs to collaborate better, is how do we continue to validate the risk, other risks side of our organisations to ensure that when we do make decisions that we, we think about the risk um, appetite. Um, most sports now want to host their own events. Um, you know, we, we see um, national federations bidding for world championships or world cups to host in Australia, and they're fantastic um, if we secure them. But the, the national federation don't necessarily have the skill base to host big international events, so they become exposed. So it's a little bit around as they develop their business strategy and their commercial appetite to ensure that they validate what they do. Now, the best way to validate that sometimes is get some external consultants in to just to give you a, a validation of, is the risk register, I've used this example, correct? Is it deep enough? Has it been independently tested? Uh, are there things that we don't know? That in, 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 there's the old adage that you just don't know until you don't know, right? Mm. So there's, there's the best way to um, pull out what you don't know is by getting independent people to look at it and tell you what you don't know. Uh, and it helps you then shape to have a more com comprehensive um, approach. Well, Nick Green, um, you're obviously as passionate about <laughs> governance in sport as you were about rowing and racing yeah. and being a, a competitor, which is a terrific thing. And, and I trust that um, uh, we thank everyone for joining us and we trust you've enjoyed hearing Nick's thoughts on it. There's plenty of food for thought there and plenty of uh, material for people to, to work on going forward in, in the governance area in sport. And it's been terrific to catch up with you again. It's, we, 26 let, years let's ago. Let's not leave it 26 we were, years again. <laughs> well, we've seen each other between then, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, someone, um, one of my teammates did send us a, a text the other day with an old photo of us with long hair and everything else. And, you know, it was 26 years ago that... Uh, the 1992 Olympic oh. Games we uh, we won. I think it was the second of August. So um, still had memories are very strong. And sports been a you know a, a, I suppose the point and same with you, Cove. Sports been part of our lives um, uh, for for years. And and we want the sports sector to be vibrant. We want it to be entertaining. We want it to be attract great people. And we want our kids, particular, to engage the passion of what sport can bring to people's lives mm. and um, so I think as now we're getting mature and more adults we have to continue to protect the integrity for our young kids sake and then they feel there's an environment then that they can survive and, and prosper and thrive and enjoy uh, it and enjoy yeah. absolutely enjoy
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've enjoyed catching up with you. And uh, it's another thing you can put on your CV. You were the very first guest in our yes. conversation series. Yes. For the uh, Governance oh, Evaluator. Come back. Um, Governance Evaluator Insights programs. Good on you, Nick. Thank you, Coves. Thank you, everyone.